When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Robert Lopez, author of the nonfiction book, Dispatches from Puerto Nowhere. The American dream is financial. It has nothing to do with liberty um, or freedom. You know, nine times out of ten, it's a financial dream. We'll be back with Robert Lopez after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. When you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that is committed to sharing the insights and challenges of the writing life. And let's be honest, there's so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free to you. But it is not without expense to me in hard costs and in labor. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours an episode. There's also equipment and subscriptions to interview platforms and sound transcripts and editing software and hosting services for the sound and a website for the archive. And those things added up are not cheap. And all of this, this whole entire colossal effort, takes a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition every week. And please understand, I am the entire show from start to finish. I am the editor, the interviewer, the reader, the researcher, the staff. Sometimes the staff doesn't perform as well as I'd like, but I am the only person performing. So why not consider supporting a woman with a dream to share literary wisdom from some of the world's best writers in a podcast platform? 
I would say with the number of episodes I've produced, which is actually more than in the archive, so more than 400, my track record is pretty stellar. And please beat the odds of having to listen to this message seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with Robert Lopez, author of three novels, including Part of the World and All Back Full, two story collections, and a novel in stories called A Better Class of People. His novel, Camby Belongo, Mean River, was named one of 25 important books of the decade by HTML Giant. His fiction, nonfiction, and poetry has appeared in dozens of publications, including Bomb, The Three Penny Review, and New England Review, among others. He teaches at Stony Brook University. His new nonfiction book is called Dispatches from Puerto Nowhere, an American Story of Assimilation and Erasure. The book is an interrogation of Lopez's heritage with a primary focus on his grandfather, Sixto, who he spent time with growing up but never really knew. Sixto was born in Puerto Rico and immigrated to the U.S. in the 1920s and lived in Brooklyn. Lopez questioned what Sixto's life might have been like in Puerto Rico and New York without ever finding conclusive answers. The book is told in short vignettes, both fictitious and remembered. Over the course of the book, Lopez creates an incomplete family portrait that attempts to connect the past to the present and reclaim a heritage threatened by both assimilation and erasure. We began with me asking Robert Lopez this question. What made this book bubble up for you? One of the things you say toward the end is that you really never wrote about your grandfather before. And I I would say that he's the kernel of this book. I suppose there were a, a whole slew of factors that went into me attempting to write this book in the beginning. And, and one was, you know, very uninspiring, uh, practical reason of being uh, in the academic world. And uh, I've been teaching fiction writing for so long, and often it is a good thing if you can have some flexibility and I, I started to turn my attention to creative nonfiction and wondering if there was something I could do there. And uh, when I started to think about what I could possibly write about, the, the first thing that came to me was uh, the, the idea of my heritage and ethnicity and how it's played a part in my life. And... Um, Initially, I had no idea what I was uh, doing or where I was going with that. Uh, the first piece I wrote had to do with language and had to do with uh, 
the uh, ethnic or racial epithets that are examined in the book. And for that chapter essay, I did not, I don't believe, think too much about my grandfather. But when I showed that piece to a friend of mine, uh, he said, I think you're writing a book. I think this is big enough for a book. And and that's what got me thinking about my grandfather, and the, who is, of course, the, the genesis for me of, uh, of my heritage and my background. So I thought, okay, I really have to delve into who he was, what I know about him, and who he was, what I didn't know about him. So it happened pretty early on, but that is, it wasn't the, the absolute kernel or genesis of the book. So the way that you structure this book, it's called Dispatches from Puerto Nowhere. And they're all little short chapters that are told in dispatches. And you name them um, from various places that you actually are or from Puerto Nowhere. That is kind of a symbolic meaning that we can talk about in a little bit. But it seems like the form was like really integral to the topic. And I'm wondering if you can talk about when a subject is so married to a form. Like, I could not imagine if this was any other way. Well, yeah, I agree. And I think there's two, there are two forms that I generally work in. And one form is this fragmented, fractured form that allows for a lot of uh, what you might call negative space in between chapters, that does something for both the reading experience and the writing experience. So I think that's a factor, of course. And then another factor would be as it relates to the subject matter, like you said in the question, and since my connection or lack of connection to my heritage and my grandfather and the language and culture of Puerto Rico, since all of that is is fractured and has been permanently broken, that presenting this material in any other form would have done the work a disservice, would have done the subject matter a disservice. It needs to be told in short bursts because that's all I have of my history and my uh, identity on that side of the family are these glimpses out of the corner of the eye and half memories and, and shards of information that are wholly unsatisfying and almost surface level. And the, and the best way to communicate that was through these very short chapters that hopefully provide for the reader um, a sense of, while we're not getting too deep into anything because there is nothing to get too deep into. There's always something else, a new way of looking at it and trying to make sense of it all. And it's that amalgam of form and content that I think makes the most sense to me on an intuitive level. The other form that I, I work with a lot is uh, the uninterrupted paragraph that can go on for a few pages, if not you know many pages. And that kind of wall of text where there are no breaths, there are no spots for the eye to rest, that kind of suffocating feeling is something that I enjoy creating and playing with but it would have been entirely inappropriate for this book. That's it, just not how this consciousness or, or, or this way of looking at a subject can possibly be successful. 
it, it felt appropriate. It felt in my wheelhouse, and and it felt that it was the only way to go forward. So knowing that, what was your experience of starting this? I mean, when you write like this with all these fragments, do you kind of draft it in that way? Well, you know, it's interesting, Betsy, because I um, I didn't start it with the kind of fragments that I that the book turned out with. Um, I started with a couple of braided essays. So the essays themselves were fragmented. Um, and, and, and they kind of moved through short paragraphs with no indentations or it had a particular visual feel to it. Um, but they weren't as fractured or fragmented as the final draft of the book. Um, it, it looked more like a traditional essay in that there were no space breaks or, or page breaks. Um, but each of those two pieces that started all of this did involve a braiding kind of technique uh, that introduced and pulled threads of several strands. So they weren't about one thing. They were about three things that kind of got woven together. Initially, you could call it fractured, but that kind of fracturing or fragmentation evolved uh, with working on the book with uh, Eric Obanoff of Two Dollar Radio, who who is a, just an excellent editor and and, and uh, collaborator, and he suggested goes, what if we make this instead of individual essays? What if we try this as one book length essay? So that's how it came about. I was going to do one book length essay. But then it occurred to me, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to chop up these individual essays, which I like the idea of. What if I make them into chapters? And so I made them into small chapters. And then after working in that mode, small chapters for the entirety of a book, like probably six months of doing it, then one day, like Eureka in the bathtub, it occurred to me, what if I titled each individual chapter? And the titles were dispatch from here or dispatch from there, some of them physical uh, addresses, some of them, you know, more poetic and tangential. Um, so the, the evolution of the form was, was quite interesting and took many, many steps along the way of, of the, probably you want to say four years of putting this book together. It, it was quite a journey on a formal. I think what's, you know, really incredible about this, this, book is that they are short fragments, but they do create a narrative. There's many through lines that have to do with tennis and identity and ethnicity and race and um, how we understand ourselves in the world and our connections to family and the American dream. So I, I, I would think that getting that through line is a really hard in the craft element, but also maybe it isn't because you were thinking about all these things when you were writing it. Again, that's a great question. I, uh, you know, I, I'm not an ideas person. I'm a language person. So almost everything I've ever written, not almost everything I've ever written has been this organic 
exploration of language that, you know, a sentence will come to me and I'll find it compelling for some reason, usually because of the acoustics or the rhythmic qualities of it. And there another sentence will come and then another and another. And before I know it, there's a human mess happening on the page. So for this, it didn't quite work that way because I was, I had an aim in mind. I had a goal in mind, subject matter, which I've never had before as, as the kind of fiction writer that I've been for the last 20 plus years, 20, almost 30 years now. So the working with this material for the first time as a writer and looking for narrative through lines and narrative connections, making sure that the tennis, yeah, you know, I wanted to talk about tennis because I love tennis, but you can't really talk about tennis in a book about heritage unless it's going to be relevant to the subject matter. So then, okay, I want to talk about tennis, but how can I make that relevant? And okay, I make it relevant, I hope, in any number of ways that come clear in the book. And of course, the most interesting of which is that my tennis community here in Brooklyn is a very diverse and uh, ethnically interesting bunch of people. And they come from all over the world and they speak their languages and most of them and some of them don't. And so all those connections to uh, heritage and language and culture are so evident to me in my tennis communities. Okay, this is the perfect vehicle to discuss the the things that I need to discuss in this book so I could put it together. And I think that's largely how a lot of it happened. So when I think about, you know, the awful business of my good friend, Paulie Heenan, getting killed by police in this book, um, okay, how can I tie that into what it is I'm talking about overall? And I think, okay, the idea of how we are policed in this country and what that has to do perhaps with culture and um, an identity and where that falls apart in places. So, you know, all of these disparate elements of the book um, do speak to each other. And it was a challenge to find those connections, but, um, it was. It just took more thinking than what I'm used to doing with the fiction. With the fiction, it kind of is an organic uh, experience in the composition of it. But but for the nonfiction, there was a lot more uh, planning and examination of how is this working overall. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. 
all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I would say that the, from my reading, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that the, you know, the generative question for this was that your grandfather came from Puerto Rico. He was born in 1904. His name was Sixto. He died when you were a sophomore in high school. His, his son, your father, didn't really grow up speaking Spanish. He understood it. And you grew up speaking no Spanish. And so this, there's a, like a chasm of connection to, for you of being of Latin heritage and not speaking the language and, and realizing that, you know, nothing, hardly anything about your grandfather's life, why he came and much about his life, even when he was living in New York where you were living. And I'm curious if once you started interrogating this, if it like opened something so much deeper that if you never looked at, you could have just lived with fine. Yeah, it certainly did. Um, as I think I said, I've never given this, this aspect of my life much thought. It was just the way I grew up. It, it was normal to me. I, it, I didn't have a connection to my grandfather um, or my grandmother, and uh, even though I saw them regularly, I have memories of them, but there there just didn't seem to be for me a a a, a strong connection. And then okay, so that happened, and I you know was doing my thing and and living my life, and and now almost thirty years after my my grandfather's death, more than that now, examining it as a this chasm that you described, this really missing part of my life that I didn't even realize was missing for so long. It, it became a, you know, in retrospect, it feels like this has shaped me as much as anything. And yet I didn't, I wasn't wholly aware of it or, you know, I, I, I was cognizant that I didn't have much of a connection to my grandfather, but it, it never it never had an impact on me. I never saw the profundity of it um, until working on this book. So, yeah, it, it really is something how, lo these many years later, I, I, I can feel and hopefully communicate this alienation that was always there, but maybe receded so far into the background for me that um, I never appreciated it until I really started examining it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you had this feeling, and obviously much of this is in your book, but you can never probably fully translate what it feels like to be human completely onto the page. And I think, you know, I've had experiences too in my life where you all of a sudden you realize something that you've just been living like somewhat oblivious, like you could feel something, and then you open it and there's there's so much pain and loss there. And it's kind of like, I don't know, it's making me tear up. Like, how do you get to like your 40s? And then all of a sudden, it's almost like, were you callous when you were younger? Were you just so consumed with the things that you care about when you're 16 that you can never get back? And so a lot of people, when they realize that, they can't look because it's too painful. But you look. 
Yeah, I did look. And I think, you know, that's part of what, you know, uh, being an artist or, you know, the kind of artist writer that you, that you want to be, you, you want to be, you know, I mean, we toss around the word fearless a lot. And of course you do feel fear from time to time for whatever reason. Um, but you have to, you know, always do it anyway. And I, uh, putting out a nonfiction book after six books of fiction, yeah, is a different experience, certainly, because yeah, I've never, when when conducting interviews about any of the fiction books, certainly never talked about my grandfather, never talked about where I come from or, or languages I don't speak or cultures that I, I um, were denied as, as a kid, and none of that material ever came up in any of the books I've written before. So, you know, after all this time, looking at this subject matter and, and realizing that that this had happened, you know, what's interesting is that I can't say I I felt pain per se in, in um, the way that I experience, say, emotional pain from, you know, the loss of loved ones or, you know, things of this nature. It wasn't that kind of pain for me. It, it was um, more just a, 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 a sadness, um, almost even a wistful kind of sadness of look what I didn't get to experience. Look what, you know, look what happened and how it, it, my life could have been different under those kind of circumstances if, I, if this sort of assimilation slash erasure did not happen to me. Um, so th it wasn't painful to write this book at all. Um, but, you know, I think like in the book, there's mentioning of, you know, grappling with what I've lost and what I've gained and trying to make sense of it. Um, it, it was an empty kind of feeling and, and it's remained an empty kind of feeling rather than a painful one. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of the concept of Sadate. Do you know that Brazilian? I'm not familiar with It's a that. Portuguese word to describe the Brazilian temperament. I think it's pronounced either like saudade or saudade. And it's basically, okay. a, 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 I mean, it's defined as like an emotional state of melancholy or profound nostalgia, longing for something absent. But it also can be a sense of longing for something that never even existed. Yeah, that, that's really, really interesting and, and quite profound. And uh, I, I like that there's a word for that in Portuguese. Like, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that it seems that we don't have in English. It's when you were defining it for me, it, it reminded me a little of the Korean word Han, which, is a, which denotes a, a sadness that is so deep that, that no tears can come. And so there's a disconnect there, but somehow involved with this feeling is a hope that doesn't make sense. Um, and that's what Han, as I understand it, uh, means. So, yeah, those two words uh, are very provocative. When you started writing this, your father had also passed away. So you really had no access to information. And I don't know if access to information even mattered for your book. Like if your mom had come around and said, oh, here's here's like the whole written history. It it mm -hmm. wouldn't matter that much because it it couldn't change the fact that you didn't live it like up until your 40s. Um, but just curious if 
if your mom is still alive and if you had conversations with her about this? Yeah, my, my, I talked to my mom a lot about, um, all of this and, uh, asking you, you know, over the course of, I want to say four or five years that I, that I worked on the book, I, uh, I talked to her a lot asking for, oh, so when this happened, what, you know, what was going on? Or I, she was a kind of a fact checker for me or not even a fact checker. I felt like a, I felt like a, an investigative reporter asking about somebody um, who I should know more about. Um, so my mom was a great resource of information, but also a frustrating one because she didn't have a lot of answers um, to all of these questions that I had. Because apparently it, it just wasn't something that was spoken about, you know, where her father-in-law came from and what he did uh, when he lived in Puerto Rico. And did he ever have any family? Uh, did he leave family behind? So all of these questions um, went unanswered. But I did talk to my mom quite a lot. And she was helpful as much as she could be. And, and recently, after I had uh, been working on the book for many years, um, she texts, she, she's in touch with a cousin of my father's who lives in Florida and there were pictures. And so I saw a few pictures from say, it looks like maybe 19, late 1940s or early 1950s of my father as a young boy with his, his father, Sixto and my grandmother and my aunt. And those pictures are extraordinary. Um, so I, I did get to see some uh, three or four photographs from the time my father was a kid growing up in Brooklyn in the 40s and 50s. And uh, so, yeah, seeing that was helpful. And everything that my mom gave me was helpful, including what she didn't give me, because it just further provided further proof that, yeah, I wasn't given any of this information Ever. And not only don't I know it, my mom, who is married to my father, uh, didn't know it either. So there's so much we don't know. It's so interesting because I feel like I heard somewhere that in general, people are either more fixated on the past or the future. Like when people ruminate, some people are always thinking about the future and some people are always thinking about the past. And I think as a, as a species, we're so curious, especially in the Western world, um, about death because we don't know what's going to happen after we die. So we kind of fixate it on it, but we also really fail. And this is something your book, you know, I got out of your book is that we don't think that much about what, what about before we were born? What about that chain of DNA? I mean, I think about it all the time. Like what were my Russian ancestors? Who were they? Like, where did they get their water? Like all of that yeah. went into me. And I, I think that that's, those are kind of the questions that th this brought up that you, you are, there's a great confluence of many things that brought you to where you are today. And to not know them, I think many of us can just go through our lives being more curious about what's next. Yeah. I, and I think for me, I've always been about what's next. Like, so looking back has never been an activity that I've engaged 
in that much at all. Um, in fact, I, I've often had a thought experiment exercise that I've given to students over the years. And I would ask them, I would poll everybody and say, okay, what's more important to you, a memory or a, a, a sandwich, a good sandwich? Um, and uh, and we would talk and you know, I would advocate for the sandwich because you could experience it and you have it in front of you and you could look forward to it while you are enjoying it. And then it is, but it's, it's omnipresent, the sandwich, right? It's, it's here. Um, and uh, whereas a memory is so intangible that very like a, uh, a method actor or, you know, a failed method actor rather, yeah, I can't feel the emotion of whatever. If I'm recalling a memory either silently to myself or uh, relaying a story of the past to a friend, I could recite it like some kind of human jukebox, but I, I can't feel whatever feelings I had back then. I, I don't. I no longer have access to that emotional state, and that's always been to me a a. a um, a drawback of, of memory and why I choose in the thought experiment, the turkey sandwich, because I, I could feel it. It's right here. And so it's really interesting having that debate with, with students, because in, in Beryl, really, it always, it comes up every semester pretty much. And uh, I enjoy it. And so many people choose the memory. They, they, I'd rather have the memory than have the, the, the turkey sandwich. So I find it interesting. And, uh, yeah, what happened before we were born, I am fascinated. But what's interesting is that I'm a, I'm a huge history buff, and I, I love history, but it's never been extended to my own history. It, it was it was like an academic history, the Egyptians and the Romans and and the Greeks and and, and ancient uh, Asia and, what, you know, and the, the Ming Dynasty in China. You know, so like all over the world, the history of the world has fascinated me. Um, but my own history, it, it never occurred to me to be curious about. And so writing this book and thinking about these issues was a spark for me thinking about, oh yeah, what happened before I was born, not just with my father and like life in Brooklyn in the forties and fifties, but my grandfather and, the, and then his parents and grandparents and assuming that they were on uh, Puerto Rico for, you know, generations, but I have no idea. Um, so playing with those possibilities now for me uh, and thinking about it uh, is both new and interesting. In some way, I, I would like to know more, whether that's through one of the, you know, websites, the heritage websites you send in a blood sample or a swab your cheek or whatever goes on there. Um, even that kind of information, I, I would like to know now. Whereas 10, 20 years ago, I, if you presented me with it, I, I would have said, okay, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Well, one of the things I think is a point that you're making in your book, this idea of erasure, is that when immigrants came to this country, um, it has been like this for a long time, uh, probably forever, that there is 
Uh, but I can see, especially in the generation when your grandparents came, like maybe between after the First World War and up through, you know, the 50s and 60s and 70s, that your task almost as an immigrant was to fit in. And so yeah. for your for your father to only speak English, for him to eat whatever, Twinkies and Ho-Hos, that was really, <laughs> that was not just what you do, but that evoked pride. Yeah. I mean, and, and for so many people from so many places to assimilate into uh, uh, America was the ideal. I mean, that was what you wanted. You, you left the old country behind for a reason and you wanted something else. You wanted what America could provide. And so becoming American was the single-minded goal of so many people, particularly working class people, um, because it, you know it was all about providing for the family, and, and then hopefully, you know, the words that you've always always heard growing up is that you want to leave more for your children than what you had. You want to provide a better life, and so all of that and those goals for so many, particularly working class uh, immigrants that sort of myopic goal of making you getting better which had to do with with wealth had to do with money it didn't have to do with culture it didn't have to do with history it had to do with you know the american dream is financial it has nothing to do with liberty um, or freedom you know nine times out of ten it's a financial dream and um you know, that's why so many people came here for that opportunity, whatever that, you know, however misguided that opportunity can be. Um, yeah, it's very straightforward looking ahead and not looking back. And it seems like, you know, it, so many, you know, millions of people have lost something in that bargain. And that, that feels like a real tragedy. Because it seems that the people who have come to this country after that time period that you mentioned had thought the exact opposite, that assimilating into this American culture isn't as important as preserving our own culture, wherever that culture is. And um, yeah, I think that's a healthier, if, he, if those two poles were some sort of Faustian bargain and you had to pick one, I think holding on to the past and that culture is more important than assimilating, although I think you do owe it to uh, yourself and your future progeny to learn the language of where you are and the culture and the history and all of that. And I, I think that's, of course, true in every direction. You know, if American, we call them expats living someplace else. They should learn all the, the culture and history of those places. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience about editing. If you have anything more to say, you had mentioned, you know, you came with these long essays and then you met Eric from $2 Radio and it he helped you kind of conceive of this maybe in a different way. And then you took it further. I'm just curious about working with an independent publisher and um, what your editing process was like, if you have anything to share. Um, yeah. So I, you know, all of my books have come out with, uh, independent publishers, be they Bellevue Literary Press or Design Books and, and now $2 Radio. Eric and Eliza of $2 Radio are extraordinary. They are, the, the experience of working with them has been singular and extraordinary. And what they, the the diligence, the the, the conscientious nature that they put into every element of the process from I mean, we handed drafts back and forth on this book, getting reads from both Eric and Eliza. It felt like maybe 25 times over the course of the full year from the time that we agreed to do the book together and and the time that it is now, uh, or the time that we put the, uh, the galley to bed and sent it off to the printer. And I'd never experienced that before. Even with uh, having a really good time publishing with Bellevue Literary Press and Erica Goldman, who's, who's wonderful. When I did Good People with them back in 2016, which is a collection of stories, there was no going back and forth editing the stories. The only editorial contribution that Erica provided was uh, sequencing the actual, the stories in, in the order that they appear in the book. And... Um, it was wonderful. I, I love her suggestion because the way I presented it was a lot different. And I thought the way Erica put it back to me was terrific. And we jumbled it around a little bit and came up with the final order. So I wasn't used to this kind of attention on a book project. And uh, going back and forth with Eric and Eliza was wonderful. Eliza would find uh, anecdotes that tie into the book on her own, find, ooh, there's this story that happened in 1954 of a of a young Puerto Rican man being killed by police in New York City. And here are the news stories. And, you know, maybe you should do something with this. And I said, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to do that. And so there were a number of places where Eric and Eliza made those kind of suggestions. And that sort of collaboration was truly wonderful. And, you know, just like any other part of the creative process, you know, I took X amount of their editorial suggestions and then said, no, we're not going to do some other ones. And, you know, that's just the give and take between any uh, writer and editor. And, uh, but so many of their suggestions were so smart and made the book not only better, but made the book what it is. And, And the book wouldn't have been the final version it is now without their contributions, and I suppose my embracing their suggestions and finding ways to make those suggestions feel like they were my own and part of the original book, right? So that's always the trick. It's like, ooh, we're going to superimpose this idea to something that you never even thought of. And so how are we going to make that 
feel seamless in the book. And so that was always a task. And so every time that task presented itself, it felt really good once it got accomplished. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? I surely can. I will read the very beginning of Samuel Beckett's Malloy, um, which is that wall of text that we referenced earlier. So it's a uninterrupted long paragraph. Samuel Beckett's Malloy. I am in my mother's room. It's I who live there now. I don't know how I got there. Perhaps in an ambulance, certainly a vehicle of some kind. I was helped. I'd never have got there alone. There's this man who comes every week. Perhaps I got here thanks to him. He says not. He gives me money and takes away the pages. So many pages, so much money. Yes, I work now, a little like I used to, except that I don't know how to work anymore. That doesn't matter, apparently. What I'd like now is to speak of the things that are left, say my goodbyes, finish dying. They don't want that. Yes, there is more than one, apparently. But it's always the same one that comes. You'll do that later, he says. Good. The truth is, I haven't much will left. When he comes for the fresh pages, he brings back the previous weeks. They are marked with signs I don't understand. Anyway, I don't read them. When I've done nothing, he gives me nothing. He scolds me. Yet, I don't work for money. For what, then? I don't know. The truth is, I don't know much. Tell me why you chose that. I love the rhythm of the sentences. I love the setup. You know, I am in my mother's room. It is I who live there now. Um, I don't know how I got there. So right in those very beginning sentences, we have isolation. We have confusion. We have this idea about, ooh, the past. I cannot account for the past. And I'm always interested in people, it seems, who can't account for something. Um, but even though we talked about dispatches from Puerto Nowhere and all of those concerns that I mentioned that I never really spent any time with, and my sever that severing of my culture and heritage and history, still without being fully aware of that specific story, the idea of not being able to account for one's life or one's past or how did we get here, that's always been something I've responded to on the page as a writer. And so here in this opening, we have all of that. This guy doesn't know where he is really, or he does know where he is, but he doesn't know how he got there. He doesn't know what he's doing, but he's doing something. He doesn't know why he's doing it. And he's going to try to make sense of it all, even though it, there's no point in trying to make sense because it never will make sense. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This particular chapter is called Dispatch from 1970s Long Island. The first time someone called me a spick was during recess or after school in the playground or in the park across the street from my house on Long Island. I was in shirt sleeves and it was hot or 
I had on a heavy winter coat with a ski hat and gloves and boots because it had snowed overnight and we could see our breath in the frigid winter cold. I like the thought of the word spick hanging frozen in the air, the vapors of which are exhaled and linger for an unnatural period of time, like in a cartoon, until they disappear. That's how I've experienced most of what's happened to me from childhood on as a series of vapors, exhalations, and disappearances. These vapors go back even further. Maybe the starting point was 1904, the year US engineers began work on the Panama Canal and New York City unveiled its first underground subway line. That same year, over a thousand miles away on an island in the Caribbean Sea, my grandfather, Sixto Lopez, was born. Maybe his mother gave birth to him on a Sunday during a turbulent spring rainstorm. The dirt road through town was washed out and impassable, and that's why the one doctor they knew of couldn't assist with the delivery. It was Sixto's abuelita who wiped the sweat from his mother's brow, extolled her to push through the pain, and gently received him as he writhed and wailed and took his first shallow breaths, glowing pink and gelatinous with blood and afterbirth. He took his final shallow breaths in a bathtub in Brooklyn in November 1987. Tell me why you chose that. I chose that because that was the first few sentences that I ever wrote about any of this. And why I read it just now was that change that we put in there. Initially, it was all about the language, the word spick, and, and what it, the circumstances and, and how people called me that and um, how we called each other that in high school. But then, again, one of those great editorial suggestions that came about I think Eric suggested, what if um, what if you, you talk about your grandfather here? And it's like, okay, how can we do, you know, how can I do that? And so we started to think about, okay, ways to introduce him. And, oh, what if we somehow tie in the year he was born to stuff that happened? And it turned out that the year he was born was you know the U.S. engineers started to work on the P Panama Canal. Panama has a few references in the in, in the book for a couple of reasons, including my, my father, who served in Panama uh, when he was in the army, and then also that imagined scene of his birth in 1904. Trying to think back to what Mayagüez, Puerto Rico, was like almost 120 years ago. That was new to me. So that was one of the first instances of trying to write a scene that was a uh, imagined scenario of what may have happened to or for or with my grandfather, which was an element of the book that wasn't there before. So putting that together and imagined history of my grandfather in with things that I was thinking about and talking about in the book became a challenge and something I had to figure out how to do. And that was one of the first instances of that in the book. Where do you write? I write here in my uh, office, in uh, my apartment. 
I am somebody, you know, being a homebody, I, I write at home. And um, I've never been somebody who goes to a cafe and uh, opens up a laptop and, and works out in public. I, uh, I always write at home. There were uh, the, the bit that takes place in Salt Lake City. I wrote some of that stuff in Salt Lake City, but I did it when I was at the Airbnb I was staying at rather than, you know, in a cafe. Even on the road, uh, I'm a homebody. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I, I go to the living room and uh, instead of the office. And uh, I actually don't feel like I have to get away from writing. You know, writing for me, you know, over the course of my writerly life, I've had so many friends come up to me and say, you're so prolific. And, uh, you know, over, the, over I don't know, the last however many years, I've managed to put out some books. And I, I can see how one would imagine a writer doing that and calling that person prolific, but it doesn't feel that way to me. To me, I spend an inordinate, an inordinate amount of time not writing. Um, most of my time is spent not writing, so it doesn't feel like it's something I ever have to get away from. But the one thing that I do have to do to get away from everything is play tennis. So um, tennis is what I use to get away from everything in the world, including balancing writing and life. So I might work for a few hours and then it's time to go play tennis. So when I do have to get away from writing, I go play tennis. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I don't always do that with, with the fiction now. Um, but the writer who, who has always been my first reader and still is, is, is Sam Ligon, who's a terrific writer living in Spokane, Washington. He's written um, novels and short stories. His books are, are, are fabulous. We went to grad school together. And, and he's my guy. He's my reader. How have you dealt with rejection? I think the way that I've dealt with it, for the most part, during the, the time where I spent the most amount of time putting myself, my, the work out there to get rejected, uh, was to keep doing it, to, to, to lean into the rejection and accumulate as many as possible. With the thinking that every time you apply for something, every time that you send a, a, a piece out, that it, it just needs to find the right eyes and that you might have to get rejected 20 or 30 times before that happens. So with every rejection, you're one step closer to getting it placed. And to me, the way to deal with the rejection is to actively court more rejection. And what is your favorite word? I'm not sure I could, I could discriminate and say I have one favorite word, but the word, a word I, I tend to use quite a lot is splendid. Um, and, uh, so for right now, I'll say that splendid is my favorite word. Thank you so much for talking to me. I'm so appreciative. Thank you, Mitzi. This, is, uh, this has been great. I've really enjoyed this conversation. If you like today's show with Robert Lopez, author of the nonfiction book, Dispatches from Puerto Nowhere, check out my interview with Valeria Luiselli on her book, The Lost Children Archive. 
We talked about the radical females in her lineage, that the flow of fiction is more important than activism in a novel, writing about children, and finding empathy. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Maggie Smith, Clint Smith, and Andrew Porter. Coming up in June is the 10th anniversary of the show. If you have an idea for a way to celebrate, email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.